0: Thanks Ian. Um, it's great to be um, preaching, it seems ages since I've done this, Sometime ages ago before the summer even started. But I've um, been very much looking forward to uh, doing this today. Um, welcome to those of you who are visitors. Um, it's great to see Farid Anushin as well with their new baby, the youngest member of our congregation. Right at the back there, just crept in while you went looking. So, welcome to you as well. Um, We've we've started, many of you'll know, a new series in the Book of Judges. We entitled it. Uh, It's going to come up on the screen behind me, hopefully. Um, Oh, here it comes! Wait for it. There we go. Fallen people, faithful God. Ian has very hopefully introduced us to this book over the last two weeks, but we're going to do something unusual today. If you thought that we were going to get into chapter 3 today and carry the story on where we left off last week, you're in for a big surprise because we're actually jumping to the end. And I want to start this afternoon by explaining why on earth would we do the beginning and then jump to the end and then go back to the middle, because we don't normally do that. Some of you are familiar with the history of the Bible and God's people in the Old Testament, But I don't want to assume anything. So let me just give you all a little timeline here so that we can all get our bearings and we're all then on the same page. There's a timeline. There is a little arrow there at the end. It's very small. Um, I'm only just going to spend two minutes on this with you. Our history begins, in a sense, with God introducing himself to a man called Abraham in the Old Testament. God starts this story not people. God came to Abraham while he was not a believer and called him. And he said something amazing to Abraham. He said to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to bless the whole world through you. What a thing for God to say to Abraham. So here he is on the timeline. Abraham has a a child and uh, his family grows And you you may know that they go down into Egypt during a famine. They stay there for over 400 years. And eventually they're oppressed as slaves. And God calls another man who didn't ask for it, called Moses. And Moses leads this massive family out of Egypt and back up to Canaan where Abraham had lived. Eventually, oh, hang on, here's Moses. Eventually, in Canaan, they appoint kings. And one of the most famous and good kings was a man called King David. There he is. And the reason I've drawn a gap there between Moses and David is because the book of Judges, in a sense, is a transition between a growing kind of ragtag bunch of people, a family, if you like transitioning into becoming a proper country. Imagine that. that. That's the period of history that we're looking at here in the book of Judges. They go from being tribes and clans to being a proper nation with a king and laws and a land and structure. And this is all going on around 1000 BC. Real history. Here's what I want you to understand Whoever wrote the book of Judges, we don't actually know, some theologians have hazarded a few guesses. Some people think the the prophet Samuel wrote the book of Judges. But whoever, whoever wrote the book of Judges lived in the time of the kings. And they're writing about this history and they're putting a particular twist and slant on it. The writer is not looking back to a glorious period in their nation's history the point of the book of Judges the writer is saying wasn't it awful then wasn't it absolutely terrible back then isn't it great that we've got kings now who govern us wisely and keep us together and help us to worship God and be a great nation but wasn't it awful then who would want to live that don't forget that God had said at the very beginning that he would bless the whole world through Abraham. And as this nation appoints kings, they're beginning to feel that it's happening. We're finally getting somewhere. So the, the book of Judges, in a sense, the writer is making the point, this is how not to do it. We don't want to go back to that mess. We're going forward now with kings to be a great nation that is going to bless the world. These days were not the good old days, they were the bad old days. A downward spiral of brokenness. Well, I, d- I said I would explain why we jump into the end, though. The writer has deliberately written this book with all that in mind. You've got all that. He's written this book with a structure. And uh, here it is. Uh, this, this is the pair of judges. This book splits into three sections. The first two chapters, Ian has already covered in the last two weeks. An introduction in two parts as well. And, and Ian did that, and we were very grateful. Then you've got history. Chapter 3 to 16 is the chronological record of all the different judges or leaders. That's why the book's called Judges. All these different leaders who came and went, How many chapters is that? Three to 16, I'm really bad at mental math. It's not 13, is it? It's 14, because you include, yeah. That's why I'm bad at math. you see. So there's chapters there of all these judges. When you get to the end, and Gwyneth read to us from chapter 17, which is the beginning of the conclusion, the conclusion is also in two parts. So the writer has given us a beautifully balanced book with a two-part introduction and a two-part conclusion and all the history in the middle. But these chapters at the end are not just tagged on in chronological order. From chapter 17, this two-part conclusion at the end is like a kind of punchline. What's happening in the middle is that the writer is climbing into a helicopter and flying over the whole story and giving us a bird's-eye view of history, Then, in chapter 17, he lands his helicopter, jumps out, and invites us right into the story to smell it, and feel it, and taste it. This is what it was like, these chapters and the conclusion are what it was like on the ground while this history was going on. Do you get that? So he's kind of, he's given us the history, and then he's saying, P.S., this is what it was like to live there. Come with me, and I'll draw you into the story and the writer isn't neutral here he's not just a historian he is trying to show them and us how desperately mixed up and messed up people were and I think in fact he is showing us too how mixed up and messed up we often are. And his solution, as we'll see, is that we need a king. We need a good and noble king who will if it, it will box our ears and sort us out and keep us safe. That was his thought. This is propaganda in a way. Writing in a time of monarchy to show the people that they didn't want to go back to this because it was desperate. So the reason we're going to jump to the end, we've seen the introduction which tells us why things went wrong. We're now going to see what it was like when it went wrong and then we'll go back and we'll look at all the history. Does that make sense? Very unorthodox, isn't it, this church? Um... We're going to um, be introduced to a man named Micah. I've called him the Hollow Man. I think that was a film. I don't think it was a very good one either, about the invisible man. I think it was a novel as well. But uh, I've called Micah the Hollow Man. Let's, um, Let's just read again the first few verses, and then we'll dive in. called Micah, there you go. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me, I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you my son. When he returned, the eleven hundred shekels, of silver to his mother she said I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol I will give it back to you so he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol and they were put in Micah's house what kind of weirdness is going on here when I read that the first time, well, not the first time, but I read that during the week, I mean, you've got to listen to this, I've got to preach it. I, I read that this week and thought, what on earth is that all about? I've got a lot of questions. First of where's the dad? First of all, that was my first question. Did you notice there's no dad mentioned here? Doesn't say why. Is he dead? Did he go to war? Is he just absent? Have they split up? No idea. There's no dad, though. I don't know if that's significant, but that was a question that I had. Uh, secondly, why, why does a son steal money from his own mum? I mean, if you're going to steal something, don't steal from your mum. Don't steal at all, but do steal from your mum. They're not poor. 1,100 shackles of silver. It says in the bottom of my Bible here in the footnote, that's 13 kilograms. The price of silver, I just Googled it, £313 a kilogram so that is 4, quid's worth of silver he's nicked of his own mum they're not poor and his mum clearly loves him and would give him anything we'll come to the mum in a minute maybe that's his problem I, I don't know but why on earth would a son steal from his own mum I said we get to the mum we'd we'll get to her next why, why does this particular mom curse the thief but think that her own son can do no wrong? It's almost comedy. I, I, it was me, mom. I nicked that money. I, I, I heard you call down a curse on the head of the thief. What, what was that? You know, me, the fleas of a thousand camels. In fact, I, 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 she curses the thief. When the son owns up, she says, The Lord bless you, my child. <laughs> the Lord bless you, son. What is that all about? She goes from casing the unknown blighter who did this to the Lord bless you, th- I mean, son. It's like she would murder the culprit, but her son, isn't he lovely? Isn't he lovely? He wouldn't harm a fly. He must have been mixed up, poor thing, to do something like this, dear me. He? He's got no dad and victim come here, son, let me give you a cuddle. Does she seem tolerant to you? Case the but The Lord bless you, my child. Way too tolerant. I I think if one of my kids nicked 4,000 quid's worth of silver for me, I don't think I'd be saying, come here and I'll give you a cuddle. But the mother seems to think he can do no wrong. the idol the idol why also does the mother say at the end of verse 2 the Lord do you notice that the word Lord there is in capitals she is invoking a blessing from the Lord God Almighty Jehovah may the Lord God Almighty bless you my son no here's a few quid go down to silversmith and get him to melt a little idol so he can worship that. What, what is that all about? The Lord bless you, my child. Now, go and make a totem pole. That, that's what she says. We'll come back to that as well. It is an odd mixture, isn't it, of getting some things right and a lot of things wrong. Maybe the mum thinks a bit of religion will help her son to get back on the straight and narrow and stop nicking things from her. I, I don't know. He's a lovely boy. He just needs a bit of guidance. We'll send him to church. They'll sort him out. It seems very odd to call down blessings from God and then worship a piece of metal. And what about the boy himself? How can this son, Micah, reconcile, stealing £4,000 worth of silver from his his mum one minute, and then building a shrine, a DIY temple to God in the next minute. To me, when I read that narrative, it seems like he's very mixed up. Is, Is he evil or is he good? He seems to be like a messy mixture Of some good and some not so good. It seems like he confidently stole the money from his mum. Then he hears his mum say, curse the thief. And he thinks, oh no, God's going to strike me down. I better own up to that. So he boldly nicks the stuff. But then seems quite frightened and almost superstitious. What I mean is, he's brazen enough to rob his own mum but then terrified of being struck down by some deity or other. Is, is he confident or is he frightened? I want to suggest to you that it tells us something about his heart, perhaps. I don't see any evidence in these verses that he actually understands the gravity of what he's done. There's no real sorrow or well, repentance. I don't think he confesses to his mum that he took the money because his conscience was pricked. I think he confesses because he's scared of being stuck down by lightning. He's more frightened about the fact that something bad might happen to him. What a mixed up family. And lastly, the money. Well, we'll we'll stick with the shekels because I can't convert it all to pounds in my head. The mother says in verse three, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. How many shekels was she talking about? Are you still with me? Pardon? Pardon? 1,100. In the next verse, verse 4, he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith. Did you notice that? Well, what happened to the other 900? Well, I suppose he nicked them to start with. But what, what what kind of business is this where she says, I solemnly dedicate 1,100 shekels to the Lord God Almighty I'll just keep 900 though and there's 200 you'll get a good enough either with that very did she change her mind is she holding back the whole thing is a mess the writer is telling us this is what it was like to live in the time of the judges just look with me again at verse 6 here, this is what I was saying. Here's the writer. He's not neutral. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. One of the older versions of the Bible says there, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes I think our modern culture might stand up and cheer at that statement in those days Israel had no king everyone just did as he pleased Hey, what a great culture I'd love to live in a country like that ban the monarchy (laughs) we don't want any politicians telling us what to do Everyone could just do what was right in their own eyes. Isn't that what we're striving for in our culture? Freedom. It's beautiful, isn't it? What a lovely verse to have in the Bible. Freedom like that. Oh, to live in such a country. Except the writer isn't saying that it's a good thing. This is his almost sarcastic condemnation. This family were like every other family making their own lives, doing whatever felt right to them at the time. There's no overarching theme. There's no unifying story. There is no big idea. Nobody really believes in anything. They make it up as they go along, house by house by house, by family by family by family. This is a 1000 BC. It could be this morning's newspaper, couldn't it? Unbelievable. So, so much for Micah's family. Well, there's a lot going on here. They, they were some of my questions anyway. Maybe they were some of yours. I think the writer is wanting us to get in the first part of this conclusion that their religion was very mixed up. There's a lot we could talk about today. But this is the main point. Micah and his mixed up religion. These people are obviously religious and it's and they're obviously mixed up. And I think that's the main point that the writer wants us to get across. Back in the days of the judges they were very mixed up about religion. They're obviously not atheists and I don't think it would be fair to say that they were rejecting God altogether. I think the author wants us to know that they really did believe in the true and living God. Might we've seen it. Micah's mum says, The Lord God Almighty, bless you, my son. In verse three she solemnly consecrates her cash to the Lord God Almighty. At the end of this section, in verse thirteen, Micah says, Now I know that the Lord, capital letters, the Lord God Almighty will be good to me. These people are really quite serious about God. Would you agree? But running alongside their seriousness is also stupidity. Can I say that? They're very serious about God, but running alongside it is a kind of stupidity. He goes down to the metal workers and has an idol made. They know the Lord, and yet they build this little totem pole he makes a shrine he even appoints his son as the priest and he makes something called an ephod that is a throwback to the time of Moses when God told Moses to make the ephod it was a sign of how much God loved them and it was also a way for them to make decisions and know what God's will was Micah just thinks I'll make my own I'll go down to the shop and I'll buy an ephod. You you can't just make an ephod, but he he makes his own. Have you got any deals on the tomorrow? I'll have an idol and an ephod. Two for one. He brings it home and he sets up his shrine. His son's the priest. Remember we said on the timeline that it was God that started this story, calling Abraham, call him moses god told this growing family his own people he told them who he was he told them what he was like he told them how they could worship him god gave moses the famous ten commandments didn't he do you know what number two is here's a test for a bunch of people in church. (laughs) I I got this wrong in the pub quiz once. i never heard the last of it either. (laughs) I got it wrong in the pub quiz. You go to church, what's the answer to this? And I got it wrong and we lost. Never heard the last of that. What's the second commandment? Anyone? (coughs) Pardon? No idols. There you go, Sam. I wish you'd been at the pub quiz with us. I'll read it to you. This is from Exodus chapter 20. God said, commandment number two. Commandment number one was, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two was, you shall not make for yourself an image. In the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. In another place, God gives them songs for the priest to sing in church. And one line says, this is in Deuteronomy 27, the Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, cursed is anyone who makes an idol. Happy song. A thing detestable to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. That verse is amazing because it says that Micah will be cursed to make an idol and yet he assumes by the end that God is blessing him. The irony is awful, isn't it? So the point is, these people kind of worship the living God, but they want to do it all in their own way, at their own time, totally ignoring the very commandments that God himself had given to them. Mixed up. Religion. It does get worse though. Because right in the middle of all this family madness, someone knocks on the door. Let's read on, shall we? Verse 7. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from i'm a levite from bethlehem in judah he said and i'm looking for a place to stay then micah said to him live with me and be my father and priest and i'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year your clothes and your food free board and lodgings so the levite agreed to live with him and the young man was to him like one of his sons Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest He lived in his house and Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. If you don't know, the reason Micah's excited and thinks he's won the jackpot here is because back in Moses' day, God told Moses that the tribe of Levi would be the priests for the whole nation. So this young chap he's a Levite, he should be working as a priest where he lived, but he thinks, I can do better than this, I want a better job. So he sets off and goes out, searching his fame and fortune like Dick Whittington, ends up knocking on Micah's door, Micah says, where are you from? I'm a Levite, he can't believe his luck. Man, come and live with me, I'll give you 10 shekels, I'll feed you, I'll give you clothes, you could be my priest. And right at the end there, verse 13, the irony that it's, it's almost like Micah sees this coincidence as a sign of the blessing of God on his life. I, I mean, no sooner, you can imagine him having tea with his wife, no sooner I'd have built a shrine, love, following day, the Levite man knocks on the door. I mean, God must be happy with us. He's throwing a party in front. Oh, let's build an Love. He'll be our priest. God's blessing us. It's going to be great. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. What is really striking in all of this narrative is that both of them are completely ignoring what God has told them to do. The writer emphasizes this at the end of chapter 18. Just flick over the page. The very last verse of the next chapter, they continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. That's a verse you could skip over, but what the writer's saying is, while all this is going on, God the house of god the tabernacle was in shiloh god had told them where to go to worship him and while the house of god was in shiloh micah and this guy whose name we don't know will come to that next week that's a little secret for now the writer deliberately doesn't tell us his name when you find out who he is next week you won't believe it don't you you're all looking now aren't you <laughs> Don't, if you do that, you'll miss the next point, so don't do not do it now. The, these two guys, they, they, they know where to go to worship God, and instead of listening to what God says, they build their own shrine to worship God as they see fit. They think that God is blessing them, and they could not be more wrong. And that's why I say these people are not rejecting God completely if you turned up at Micah's house you'd think he was the most spiritually minded religious man you'd ever met but what they're actually doing is DIY religion this is just one example that the writer climbing out of his helicopter inviting us into the story let me tell you about Micah. he's just one. There were loads like this. That's what the writers tell us. When it comes to religion, most people just make it up. And if it feels good and it seems to work, then God must be pleased. everyone's a winner. How on earth does this connect with you and me though? I don't think you're going to go home and make a little totem pole. You might, but I'm guessing. I don't think you're going to install the local vicar to be your personal spiritual guru and run it for you either. So why do we even bother reading a chapter like this? How is this relevant to you and me now today? First of all, I just want to say two things about idolatry, making idols. First of all, idolatry can be the attempt to replace or substitute God with something else. You get that? God's not enough for me, so I'm going to substitute him in the 65th minute and bring on a better player. We're replacing God for something else that we think is better than him that's the issue we might not call that worship in a religious sense but I want you to think about this though actually we are all worshipping something let me ask you as I've been asking me what is it that you live for What is it that the affections of your heart are set upon? In a way, that thing will be your God. You may not physically bow down to it at home in a little shrine, but the way you organise and live your life will ultimately be to please this God and serve it faithfully in the belief that it will make you happy and secure and fulfilled let me read to you a british uh, preacher i suppose david jackman said said this commenting on this passage actually an idol is anything that usurps the place of god because I'm looking to it to give me real life to protect me or to enrich me an idol is anything that squeezes God into the margin of my life because that thing has now become of more worth to me than him it could be our marriage or family life the achievements of our kids the success of our church even our position as a valued Christian leader or a growing disciple, even our service for the Lord, our financial generosity, our biblical or doctrinal knowledge, our spiritual gifts, once we fall in love with any of these good and potentially godly ingredients of life, rather than with the Lord himself, as the undisputed number one in our experience, we are casting our idol as surely as Micah did. but it's slightly more subtle for Micah because he's not just substituting God. So he is a second. Idolatry can also be the attempt to combine God with something else. That's slightly different, isn't it? Micah's not an out-and-out atheist. He's not saying, I don't want you, God, I'm having this instead. He's a bit more subtle than that. What he's doing is trying to have his cake and eat it. He wants God. And something else as well. And he tries this strange DIY hybrid thing that's going on. All the while, God is there, but he's trying to mix things up. A bit of God, and a bit of this, and a bit of that, and a bit of the other. It's like pick and mix. (coughs) Let me just try and highlight for you some issues with this Approach. I've got four things to say, and then a little conclusion, and we'll be done. Idolatry combining God with something else. First of all, what distorting God? Why? Why did God make that number two in the list of commandments? Don't make an image and bow down to it. That is a good question. I don't know. full answer to that but here's a thought just for you to think about the truth is if if, if someone said to you make something that represents God what would you make? maybe if you wanted to demonstrate his power you would but how would that demonstrate his love and compassion and tenderness maybe you want to get across something of his justice but how would you create something that demonstrated that and at the same time is mercy and grace can you see what i'm saying whenever you try to make something however it is physically artistically you you will always end up reducing god to something less than he really is Whatever image you use, however you try to betray him, it will capture something, perhaps, but never everything. So when, I mean, these guys are building physical idols. Whenever we try to portray God, we may get some things right, but we will get other things wrong. And what we end up with is a grotesque caricature of God rather than the real thing. When we make images and idols, we end up worshipping a caricature rather than God himself. So that's that's one thing. You can have a think about that. Come back to me. Here, secondly, ignoring God. What do I mean by that? Remember that God had actually told both of these guys in this story what to do very clearly, but they just didn't feel it. I just don't feel it today. I know what God wants me to do, but it just doesn't feel right. What they're effectively saying to themselves is, if something feels right and it makes me happy, it must be good, right? Right? Never mind that it clashes with something that God clearly said. Maybe God's changed his mind since then. Who knows? One writer says this, Micah's family shapes a God who is convenient to worship. They follow the laws they do like and ignore the laws they don't like. What they're actually doing is developing a kind of consumer mentality to their own morality. I listen when I feel like it and when it suits me, but if I don't agree or that doesn't fit with my path, then I'm going to reject that part. Sometimes I'll meet people and I'll say to them, you know, do you believe in God? And they say yes. And I might say to them, if I'm feeling cheeky, what kind of God do you believe in? And often they'll say, well, what I think about God is, or I prefer my gods to be, and then they'll tell me their opinions on God. Basically, the God that they hope God is or think God is. And some people have stronger opinions than others on that. That's exactly what Micah's doing here. They're completely ignoring what God Himself has said and they're relativizing and subjectivizing their own morality. Micah is so focused on his feelings that he takes what looks like a complete good coincidence as a sign that God is so pleased with him instead of actually listening to what God has said he's claiming to worship God but it's actually a distortion of God and he's ignoring what God has already said to him does that ring bells for us it does for me I think it should for all of us thirdly Controlling God, I wrote down here. The taming of God. What Micah seems to want more than anything, and I think so do we, is to have a God that we can control. Micah and his family—they're not so much rejecting God. They look like the most religious people I've ever met. They've got a shrine in their own house. I don't know many people who've got that. If they—they they would be like top of the pile, wouldn't they? In the religious, respected community, got our own shrine in the annex our own priest a Levi as well what a stroke of love that was when he turned up God's really blessed our family it's marvellous marvellous but what they're actually doing is trying to use God to meet their own ends do you see how, how that relates to us, we want to recreate God and reshape God and remake him to fit our desires rather than allowing him to shape our desires. Micah's do-it-yourself mixed-up religion was aimed at getting God to do what he wanted God to do rather than allowing God to help him to do what he should be doing. His religion is an attempt to control God and manipulate God and use God. His whole life is based on, if I do this, then God will have to treat me well. And when his life did seem to go well, he just assumed it was because it was all working out just fine. Let me read another quote to you. I like reading these quotes because they say a lot better than I could. Ian and I have been reading an author called Dale Ralph Davis. He's got a brilliant commentary on Judges. This is one of his little gems. The essence of idolatry is to want to bring God within our pocket so as to control him. Foolishly, we imagine that we can deal with the source of life on the same level as ourselves so that we can bribe him or drive a bargain with him or compel him to do what we want, to give us what we want out of life. Above all and at all costs, what natural human beings want is a God that will not make demands on our lives, but one that will give us what we need and require nothing in return. Ouch, part two. It is possible... And I I say this gently and I'm saying this to my own heart. It is possible for us to look like we're worshipping God very sincerely and all the while what is going on is that we're actually just worshipping ourselves and our own ideas instead of him. We cannot use God to serve us. He is not a puppet to manipulate he created us we do not make him in our own imagination don't you think it's amazing that a narrative like this is even in the bible if i was writing the bible i would just write about all the good stuff and make it look really great but here it is in the bible it's it's realistic isn't it it's so up to date And I hope it rings bells with you. We live in a culture that breathes this kind of air. We are very spiritual and very individualistic. Does this not parallel the contemporary mood, even in the church, that worship is actually a very individual affair A matter of sheer personal preference and like your toothbrush, a very personal thing. To declare that faith or worship or religion are regulated by revelation and subject to sovereign prescriptions sounds like a novel idea. Surely God is not so picky. Such people really believe that the most appropriate symbol for what we believe and how we worship should be a big blob of fat which everyone can flop and squeeze and shape the way he or she wants it. Imagine if that was a new religion and the symbol of the religion was a piece of fat. Come in, you can make it look whatever you like. That would be I mean, that would be a popular <laughs> church, wouldn't it? God can be whatever you make him. He's morph. <laughs> It's a telling comment, isn't it? Idolatry then. Where did we get to? Distorting God, ignoring God, controlling God. Here is the tragic thing. That for all this, we lose him. If we replace the living God with something else, if we try to recreate him according to our own desires, feelings, opinions, what we actually end up with nothing the gods that we invent and try to manipulate are not the real thing and they will evaporate and disappear this week some of you know I've been in my work office more than I normally am it's been a very busy few days some of my staff have been off for various reasons most recently a Family bereavement, and it's quite a long time actually since I've sat in the hot seat. I mean, it's a bit scary. I've been doing things I haven't done for like the best part of I don't know, nearly ten years. Um, actually sitting in the hot seat, quoting real jobs, and hoping that I don't mess it up. When the, when one of the guys came back on Friday, I said to him, "I hope I've passed the probationary period, and you'll give me a full time job." He just laughed, but he didn't say anything else. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, this week I'm sat at work quoting real jobs and a very big, multinational, well-known company who make beauty products called me up and said, we need some shampoo bottles. And they sent some computer files of these shampoo bottles. that were actually solid shapes, so if we'd made them, they'd have been really heavy. And the guy said, can you hollow out the insides of these bottles and then build them on your 3D printing machine? And I said, yes, I think we can. And he placed an order. I was so excited. That was the highlight of the week. But it actually made me think, in all that business, it made me think about Micah. Because it may have well been him on the phone, you know. I'd like a God just hollow him out and build him for me that's exactly what he said to the silversmith wasn't it I'd like a God but I don't want any content we'll hollow him out we'll see in the next chapter I wish we could have got to this today but I couldn't do it in time that Micah Thinking he's blessed by God ends up with nothing. When you get into chapter 18 and verse 24, some guys come and they steal his gods. And he chases them down. And in verse 24, he cries out pathetically You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? What a pathetic cry. He casts his own gods, and they don't even have the strength to protect themselves, let alone him. And the anguished cry of his heart in the end is I've got nothing left. Everything I've lived for has gone up in smoke. The Bible is telling us that that is how creating gods in our own imagination always ends in tears. Hollowing God out only serves to make him hollow. Making God shallow makes him shallow. He worships a shadow and ends up being a shadow of the man he could and should have been. And that is the real problem with our idolatry. Micah's God and our God promises so much, but they are a shadow of the real thing there's nothing much wrong with his dreams he dreams of security and safety and peace and well-being his problem is that the way he goes about trying to get those things he fails to trust God on God's terms and tries to recreate him in his own image why does this writer tell us all this part of the answer is that he's suggesting a solution chapter 18 verse 1 stay again in those days israel had no king can you see what he's subtly trying to say what, what what's needed guys is a good and noble king who will govern you wisely and keep you safe and keep you from this kind of idolatry and unite you in a joyful celebration of vibrant praise to the true and living God. Instead of this, every man for himself. You need a leader to inspire you. But you know, in biblical history, even that didn't work. Because the kings who came and went, who they pinned all their hopes on, were selfish and brutal and idolaters themselves. But this is still God's story. And it's in the Bible because people have fallen and God is faithful. It's in the Bible because all this failure actually points to a greater king and to a greater truth that the place where you and I meet with God is now not in Shiloh or not even in a building, REC, the place where we meet with God and find forgiveness and peace and power and hope is in a person, a king, the ultimate king. His name is Jesus, God's own son, sent to save us from all of this mixed up DIY religion he is the one who lived the life that we haven't and died the death that we deserve. And his call to you and to me today is to stop chasing shadows and hollowed-out gods that promise much and then disappoint. If you come to if you come in faith to Jesus, you will not distort God. You will not be ignoring God. You won't be controlling God and you will never lose God. You'll know him and he'll save you because he is not the hollow man. The point of this story is not Micah was a bad man, don't be like him. The point of this story is we're all like Micah but Jesus is the king who comes to rescue us. So worship